1: In New York City in 1949, a man named Frank McNamara forgot his wallet while taking a wealthy client out for dinner. The embarrassment of not having cash to pay the bill left its mark, and a year later, Frank launched the Diner's Club card, the world's first credit card. It was a card for people who needed convenience more than credit, as Frank McNamara's son Bob put it.
2: The driver for Diners Club in the beginning was to provide a credit card for upscale people to have the ability to go out and use their Diners Club card at select restaurants.
1: Frank McNamara couldn't know at the time that he wasn't just finding a cashless way to make sure he paid for dinner, but setting in motion a change in the way that payments worked. A change that by now might even threaten the dominance of the dollar. Cashless is now very much the way of the world, not least in digital payments from China's Alipay to India's UPI to, well, to the still relatively clunky means of paying for things in America. But all that low-friction digital transacting, especially across borders, has caught the attention of central banks too.
3: The Reserve Bank of India today became one of the first central banks to launch a digital currency for retail use. At this Shanghai shopping mall, Hong is testing out China's new digital currency. It's safe, convenient, and it works, he says.
1: The digital pound, a new form of money for households and businesses. Over 65 countries are now developing their own central bank digital currencies. And all that has some economists wondering whether consumers and central bankers might eventually turn their backs on the world's reserve currency. And whether that modern, digitized version of what Frank McNamara started might just, seven decades later, come to dethrone the dollar. You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. In Hong Kong, I'm Mike Bird. In London, I'm Tom Lee Devlin. And in today's show, the growth of digital payments and currencies and what it means for the dollar's 100-year reign. First, we get to grips with digital
4: payments, digital currencies and the differences between them.
0: All you really want is money that you can pay with digitally, frictionlessly. But there are some subtle distinctions between different types
1: of money. Then we hear from the European Commission about its plans for a digital euro.
3: The dollar is certainly there. It isn't that we want to overtake or suppress, but what we would like to see happen is that the euro is used more in international transactions.
4: And finally, we consider whether the march of digitization could spell the end of the dollar's dominance as a global currency.
2: The Chinese central bank and the financial regulators have made it very clear that they will not implement the policies that are necessary that will allow the currency to be a serious contender versus the dollar. Hey, Tom.
4: Hey, Mike. So it's just the two
1: of us today, it seems. Do you know where Alice is? I don't actually know. She seems to be on another one of her holidays. One of many, as I'm sure the listeners will have noticed. I'm not 100% sure where she is physically, but uh, certainly not here.
4: Well,
1: very jealous. And you yourself seem to be
4: on a, uh, a grand tour of Asia at the moment. Last week, I think you were in Seoul. Now you're in Hong Kong. I know you used to live there for a while. So what brings you back to your old stomping ground?
1: Yeah, I've been traveling quite a bit recently. I thought it was time to drop back into Hong Kong to see how things are going. When I left, everything was sort of very heavily COVID restricted. It's nice to be back now that all that has ended.
4: So I know Alipay and WeChat are very popular in mainland China.
1: How are you generally paying for things in Hong Kong? So cash, actually. I moved to Hong Kong in 2018 and was pretty astonished to find, having never been here before, that Hong Kong is still very backwards in terms of payments relative to the mainland.
4: Yeah, the UK also seems somewhat behind mainland China, though I have to say further ahead than the US. So I basically don't take my wallet with me anymore in the UK at all. I, I pay with Apple Pay pretty much everywhere. But when I was in New York a few weeks ago, there were still plenty of restaurants and bars that wanted a card and a signature.
1: Yeah, America does seem to be amazingly behind in this area, which is part of what we're talking about today. There's been a lot of discussion about whether the dollar is losing its dominance, whether it's going to be supplanted by the Chinese Yuan or any number of other currencies, But that conversation has largely focused around whether the increasingly sour relationship between the U.S. and China might prompt that sort of change and the fact that Chinese trading and lending has grown massively over the past couple of decades.
4: Yeah, it's typically those kind of macroeconomic and geopolitical factors that drive discussion around the sustainability of the dollar's dominance. But it's also interesting to consider whether shifts in the underlying technology of money could also be a
1: disruptive force here. Someone who's been thinking about that question a lot is our colleague, Arjun Romani, who's been looking into whether digital finance can reduce the world's dependence on the dollar, among other things. Arjun, hi. Hey, Mike. Great to be here. So I think the first thing to untangle here is the difference between digital payments and digital currencies. Because at first glance, it's hard to tell the difference when the vast majority of money in circulation in the UK, I think it's something like 96%, isn't backed by physical notes and coins in any way. Spell it out to us. What are the differences between these different things that all get bundled together and described as money?
0: Just to start with cold, hard, physical cash, that's what we called central bank money, which means it's a claim on the central bank's balance sheet. It's a liability of the central bank. And so if you're a common person, the only way you can access that is with physical currency. So then if you're a common person, you can't really actually have access to central bank money in a digital form. And that's why a lot of governments are now doing what are called central bank digital currencies or CBDCs. And a few countries have already done so. You know, we have the Bahamas Sand Dollar. We have the e-Naira in Nigeria. China has ECNY. And so this is the first time a common person has had access to central bank money. The second type of money that's digital is commercial bank money. So this is what me and you have in our bank accounts that we access in our bank apps. It's convertible one-to-one with central bank money. And the final type of money, which it's not quite clear if it's even worth the label money, is cryptocurrency. So, you know, this is not backed by a government. Uh, It doesn't really satisfy all the properties of currencies that we traditionally talk about. So those are the three big buckets, you know, central bank money, commercial bank money and cryptocurrency and all have digital forms.
1: That is very nice and a very clear elucidation where are we seeing these new forms of digital finance really take hold? We heard a little bit in the intro, starting with the sort of first credit card. But where are the real areas of sort of establishment and growth happening now?
0: Yeah, so credit and debit cards are kind of the first form of this. And they've had a Hold in advanced economies for a long time. It's worth noting that their penetration rates have actually increased quite a bit in recent years. So, you know, they'll continue to matter. But really, the new wave of digitization is having its biggest impact in emerging economies. So, you know, the first place to point to this, you know, I would say is Kenya, where they launched mobile money or M Pesa back in 2007, which allows you to send money with a text message. And the thing that was really revolutionary about this is it used the existing infrastructure, which a lot of people already had access to and then built payments on top of it. That's actually been the story in a lot of other countries. If you go to China, 90% of payments now are done digitally through WeChat or Alipay. And it's really Alipay that really kicked us off in 2011 with QR code-based payments. And again, it's about using the existing infrastructure. It's way cheaper than having to get you know expensive point-of-sale card reader that you have to do for credit cards in the West. And I think that's a key reason why adoption was driven. And then there's India, the world's most populous economy, where digitization is moving fastest. And then CBDCs, which has even lower adoption rates, but some people think it could have a role to play in the future.
1: So that's where we are right now. Now, when some people talk about this, they talk about the idea of digital currencies, of new payment systems, posing a sort of threat to the dominance of the dollar. Lay out for us a little bit about the theory there. How would digital payments, digital currencies change the sort of architecture of the international currency system?
0: There are a lot of factors that determine what the dominant currency will be. But one way in which payments play a role actually was spelled out by Keith Gopinath and Jeremy Stein, two economists in a paper a few years ago. It was titled, Banking Trade in the Making of a Dominant Currency. And what they did is they really emphasized the role of a trade invoicing. So when currencies start pricing trade and then trading in a certain currency, then the currency starts to establish a role. And once it does so, other roles of the currency get built out around it. For example, if you're using a currency for trade, then you might want to start building financial markets in that currency that you can use to hedge your risk because you're gonna to have to hold that currency and then of course you know maybe there becomes an incentive for countries to build out other institutions to facilitate trade in that currency, for example, you know court systems that are experienced with managing trade disputes and so on and so forth. And the way payment systems play a role, I think, is really through what we call the transaction cost channel. So basically, if you're able to drive down the cost of trading in a given currency, if you have a very efficient settlement system, then more people might be willing to use that currency for trade. And so I think the build out of all these new payment systems, and there are several new ones that have been propped up in recent years, the most notable being China's Interbank Payment System, or SIPS, which has basically doubled in its share of trade finance in the past few years, that's really gotten a lot more efficient, which is one reason why, you know, people are starting to talk about, you know, are there threats to the dollar, perhaps through this trade invoice channel?
1: Arjun, that is really fascinating. Thank you. And please stick around because I'd like to come back to you a little bit later. Happy to, Mike. Thanks. To get a sense of how policymakers are thinking about the way central bank digital currencies could be used and whether they could rival the dollar, I spoke to the woman who's masterminding plans to create a digital euro. Commissioner Mairead McGuinness is the European Commissioner for Financial Services, Financial Stability and the Capital Markets Union. Commissioner, thank you for joining us.
3: Pleasure to be with you.
1: So you're in London today. I believe you're meeting with the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Jeremy Hunt, and the Bank of England Governor, Andrew Bailey. One of the things I believe is on the agenda will be plans for a digital euro. Could you outline to us what the European Commission is exploring in terms of a digital euro? And maybe a little bit about how a digital euro would be distinct from currency that's held in a digital form as people know it now or different from physical cash. What are we really talking about here?
3: Where we're at at the moment is, I suppose, an inflection point. So the Commission working with the ECB, we will make a proposal in June around the framework legislation should the ECB move and make a decision to launch a digital euro. And it was really important that we get this issue off the, if you like, theory and answer the practical questions like the ones you have raised so that people get to understand what we're thinking about, which requires me to go back a little, if I may. So maybe two years ago, a little more, there was a lot of concern around a potential launch by Facebook, the Libra project. You will remember that. I think finance ministers, governments were concerned about a potential disconnect between a currency and a country. Equally, Europe needs to make sure that the euro is fit for the future and then COVID accelerated how we do transactions. Many people who were using cash all the time reduced their use of cash, have switched completely to not even a card, but the iPhone. So it's been a rapid transformation in how we make payments, and it is towards more digitalisation rather than less. And against the background of both of those and with an eye to the future, The reason why it's important we do this work with the ECB is to make sure that in a few years' time, we have prepared the ground for whatever decision the ECB will make.
1: So what's the use case here? How different is this from payment apps like Apple Pay that most of us will already have on our phones?
3: if cash is used less and less and we defend the right of people to have access and availability of cash, really important to say that because people do want to still have cash, but the trend is towards less use of cash. And if that continues the way it is today, then what is the alternative in terms of a central bank digital euro, so a digital public money? And that's why we're required to look at future proofing in the euro and that you as an individual can have a certain amount of cash In your wallet, that's central bank, if you like, fully backed. It's like cash and you can make transactions. And I think in terms of the payment landscape, it's an addition, which is important. And then there is making sure that the euro plays its part globally as a currency. And then the whole issue of payments generally.
1: I think for a lot of people, they might not know exactly what it means to take a role as a global currency, exactly why the European Commission would aim to have a global role for the euro. I mean, what do you see as important when we're talking about the international role of the currency? And how do you think a digital euro sort of contributes to that?
3: The European Union has quite an international presence in terms of how we legislate. And very often we're looked towards for the things that we do, including around the whole sustainability and the financial system. And therefore, it is only logical that we would want to make sure that the euro is recognised for what it is. It's the currency of a significant number of member states of the European Union. The world will make its own decisions about strengths or weaknesses of currencies. I mean, the dollar is certainly there. It isn't that we want to overtake or suppress, but what we would like to see happen is that the euro is used more in international transactions. And so where
1: would a digital euro sit with all of this?
3: We need to think for the future about the payment system, the use of a digital currency in trade, um, both in goods and services. And I think doing the work now will allow us to get to that place whenever we're heading in that direction to strengthen and facilitate a greater recognition of the euro on the global stage, not just for itself, because I think it's important for the European Union of the investments we have made in creating the euro as a currency that is so widely accepted and available. So I think it's just part of the normal evolution of the European Union
1: I have just one final question. And that is, do you worry about the sort of dominance globally of the dollar at all? It looked for a a period of time up until the global financial crisis, that the euro would take on a much larger role in global finance and as an international currency. Does it concern you having one very large major currency so dominant?
3: Well, look, we work very well with the US. So, I mean, it isn't that we would worry and have concerns. I think that we're looking to ourselves and our own strengths and that our idea and our hope for the euro is that we build everything towards the euro having a stronger international role, I mean, with the dollar as opposed to against it. And we've had an interesting time around these last months with this war, our sanctions regimes, our cooperation with global partners, including the United Kingdom. So I try and worry where it's useful. I mean, there's no point in worrying without purpose. So I rather think that we have opportunities in Europe.
1: Commissioner, thank you very much for making the time to speak to us. Pleasure. So, Tom, I must admit, this has me puzzled a little bit about precisely what role this is meant to play. I'm obviously in the role of the cynical journalist here, But it seems like a lot of central banks saw the existence of technologies that would allow the development of digital currencies and thought, huh, we should do that, rather than starting from some pressing need to which digital currency seemed to be a good answer. And I suppose, to a greater degree, what I'm a little bit confused around is what improvement this makes on the sort of fiat currency options available. Do you see a use case for a central bank digital currency, particularly in Europe?
4: Yeah, I I think I share your skepticism here, Mike. I think I can see a a stronger case for this for the US and maybe also for China. In the US, we were talking earlier about how the payment system is quite dated technologically, and the fees extracted by payments companies are also a lot higher there than they are in, in Europe. So the value of a central bank digital currency as a new option might be greater, I think for the U.S., a CBDC might also be useful if it allows the country to keep a closer tab on, on how and where its currency is being used around the world, which would help it with sanctions enforcement in particular. And on the flip side of that, China, I think, wants to avoid a situation where it's locked out of international trade if the U.S. were to cut its access to dollars as it has done with Russia. And as Arjun mentioned, reducing the transaction cost of using China's currency via a, a CBDC could maybe help with that. Well, it remains unclear to me you know, the magnitude of the benefit there, but I suppose that's one potential argument in favour of
1: pursuing a CBDC. Now, we're spending a lot of time this week talking about things that would put the dollar at risk and maybe missing the elephant in the room, the US debt ceiling. I'm very excited to read our content this week on the debt ceiling debates and the negotiations going on, whether this is all going to be irrelevant and the U.S. reserve currency is going to collapse because the U.S. is going to default on its debt. I'd like to know about that. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to reading that this week. Listeners can read
4: those pieces and many more for absolutely nothing by going to economist.com forward slash podcast offer for a free 30-day digital
1: subscription if you're not a subscriber already. After the break, we'll hear why it'll take more than digital payments alone to dethrone the dollar. But before that,
4: we want to hear from you. We're always trying to improve, and whether you're a loyal fan or you're new to the Money Talks Club, we want to know what you think. So please take a few minutes to fill out our survey by going to economist.com slash talks survey.
1: Before the break, we heard why the European Commission is exploring the creation of a digital euro. But Europe's is not the only currency normally touted as the biggest threat to the dollar's status as the world's reserve currency. Given that China now has the largest trade volumes of any economy in the world, the yuan or the renminbi is often considered a potential future reserve currency. But to understand why that might be overblown, I spoke to Michael Pettis. He's professor of finance at Guanghua School of Management at Peking University in Beijing. And among other things, he's a former nightclub owner. Michael, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Explain to us a little bit, just from the most basic principles, what makes a currency dominant? What do we mean when we're saying that?
2: There really isn't a history of dominant reserve currencies. There's basically the US dollar. Before the dollar, the currency was gold. Now, there's a common argument out there, Mike, that the claim is, in order for a currency to be a dominant reserve currency, the home country must be willing and able to run very large deficits. But that's not completely true. What the world requires of its dominant currency is that it accommodates whatever the needs of the world are. So, you know, you can look back at the dollar and say, it's been a dominant currency for about 100 years. The first 50 years, the U.S. ran surpluses And during the second 50 years, it ran deficits. So what's the difference? And I would argue that during the first 50 years, the global economy was characterized by the destruction of the two world wars. So what the world needed from the dominant currency at the time was to be able to import savings. And of course, the US ran enormous surpluses and exported savings to Europe and Japan. By the 1960s, 1970s, the global economy was substantially rebuilt from the war. And then there was a big shift in what it needed. It no longer needed to import savings. It needed to import demand and export savings. And the U.S. then shifted into running large permanent deficits. So I think the key is, if you want your currency to be the dominant global currency your economy basically has to be able to accommodate whatever the needs of the rest of the world are.
1: We've spoken a bit already on the podcast about the euro's role internationally. Obviously, the Chinese government and the People's Bank of China would like for the Chinese yuan to have a greater role internationally. What attributes in particular are the ones that other currencies lack that the dollar is providing when investors and companies look at using the the euro or the yuan or any other currency?
2: Well, I think there are two very, very separate issues. One is in which currency do you denominate trade? And the other uh, issue is in which currency or in which economy do you accumulate the balances against surpluses or against exports? And by that I mean that if you want to trade in a particular currency, it's very easy to do. You know, to be a little bit unfair, I can say if you have an iPhone and the right app, you can pretty much denominate your trade in any currency you want. I mean, I can sell you oil in ringgits if you like. It's no big deal. The real issue for me is once I sell you the oil, what do I do with the proceeds? and what form of asset do I accumulate the proceeds? And there I would say that's where the U.S. plays such an important role, and not just the U.S. Interestingly enough, it's all of the Anglophone economies the US, the UK, Australia, and Canada together account for roughly 80% of all of the global deficits, which is another way of saying that roughly 80% of all of the excess global savings goes into those four countries. And why do they do so? I would argue that they do so for very similar reasons. Those countries have relatively good governance, deep and flexible financial markets, and a willingness generally to treat foreign claims on ownership with the same standards as domestic claims on ownership. What do you make
1: of the argument that central bank digital currencies could help lead to a sort of more multipolar currency system that it might make the dollar less internationally dominant? Does that side of things matter in, in your model of how these things
2: work? Almost not at all. You know, we often hear that discussion about the digital RMB. Once the RMB is completely digitalized, then everybody around the world will be able to trade RMB and its role in global trade will rise significantly. Well, if you live in China, you're not really waiting for the RMB to be digitalized. China is already digitized. Everybody does everything on WeChat or on one of the various digital payment systems, why can't we use that for trade? For example, if I owed you $100, why can't I simply send you the money on WeChat? Because of capital controls, China does not allow capital to flow from inside the country to outside the country, or vice versa, without significant constraints. And the reason it doesn't allow that is for very good risk reasons. If it were to give up control of its capital account, by definition that would also mean giving up control of its current account. That would mean allowing huge inflows whenever foreigners wanted to invest in China, which is basically when things are going well in China, and huge outflows whenever things are going poorly in China. All the sorts of developing country problems that China is doing everything to avoid. So when people argue that digital currency solves the problem of capital flows, no, it doesn't. It doesn't even address it.
1: And when we look at the things that have happened in the last, let's say, the post-financial crisis period, I've read a lot about the sort of weaponization of the dollar, the use of the dollar increasingly in sanctions, the sort of long arm of the US Treasury stretching around the world, and sort of using some of that dominance, either for the US legal system to sort of stretch way beyond American borders, or in the case of Russia and Iran, for sort of foreign policy reasons. Is there any sort of undermining of the dollar's role on that basis? Is that a narrow issue or a major issue?
2: You know, we often talk about the exorbitant privilege of the dollar. And I think that's a real mistake. I would rather talk about the exorbitant burden, but even that's a simplification. The global use of the dollar creates both costs and benefits for the U.S. From a geopolitical point of view, it's a benefit because to the extent that the U.S. controls the global payment system, that gives it an enormous amount of power. And that power it can use well or it can use badly. And I think a number of people would argue that perhaps it's using it badly. But the global use of the dollar also comes at an enormous cost to a different group of Americans, and that is basically American producers and American workers, the American middle class. And the reason I say that is because countries that have a weak domestic demand are able to resolve that weak domestic demand by running surpluses, which means at the same time that they have to acquire assets abroad. And, of course, they acquire, for the most part, American assets or assets in the Anglophone economies. And that has an impact on those economies. So in the U.S., with all of this money flowing into the U.S., foreign saving flowing into the U.S., the U.S. has to respond. And those foreign savings create the current account deficit, which is another way of saying that those foreign savings inflows create a gap between investment and savings.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. This phrase, exorbitant privilege, is often used to describe the role of the US dollar, basically the idea being that the US has a special advantage because everyone globally uses the US dollar. So you're talking about an exorbitant burden there, a difficulty for the US economy. I mean, in your view, given your thoughts on this, You might think that countries are making a mistake by even pursuing the idea of having a global currency themselves, making their own currencies international reserve
2: currencies. A lot of people think choosing the currency in which you denominate your international transactions is a bit like choosing the color of your shirt, and you can simply switch. And I would argue that that's not the case. The currency plays a fundamental role in the structure of international trade and capital flows, and that fundamental role requires massive deficits on the part of the U.S. And the problem is that everybody wanted the benefits of currency domination, but they were all very clear they did not want to absorb the corresponding costs. And of course, that's impossible. You choose both or you choose neither the Chinese central bank and the financial regulators have made it very clear that they will not implement the policies that are necessary that will allow the currency to be a serious contender versus the dollar.
1: Michael, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very
2: much for making the time to talk to us. Thank you very much, Mike. It was a pleasure. I'm back
1: with The Economist, Arjun Romani. Now, Arjun, thank you very much for sticking around. Thanks, Mike. Now, we heard from Michael Pettis there, looking, I think, very much from the other end of the telescope, from the one you elucidated at the beginning of the episode. He thinks that anyone worried that the dollar might be replaced by the yuan or other more digitized currencies probably don't need to be losing any sleep about that. What do you think of that sort of view? So I think I mostly agree with Michael, you know, in the short term,
0: the dollar's dominance really isn't threatened on a lot of different measures. For example, the dollar's share of The government bond market that different countries are saving in, it's actually doing quite well. And really, currency status is determined by structural factors more than anything. So, you know, the open capital account, which is something that China doesn't have. You need to have a court system that investors trust. You need deep financial markets. But I think there are two things that digitization does that are quite interesting. The first I mentioned before, which was reducing transaction costs, the fact that these new settlement systems have propped up. And what that really does is it gives countries an alternative to using the dollar-based system if they want to. And so even if you don't necessarily see the dollar status changing in the numbers, what it does mean is countries have other options when needed. And that's one reason why, frankly, Russia's economy has been able to stay afloat despite being extremely heavily sanctioned. Right. Domestically, it's had its own payment systems that are not dependent on the West. And abroad, it's been able to use, for example, China's SIPs, and get around these sanctions. So, you know, even if the dollar is still on top, the power that it offers in terms of sanctioning other countries might no longer be as strong as it once was. So that's kind of the first thing I would say. And then, of course, the second thing is once you have these alternative channels and countries start using these a lot more, then eventually you know, maybe countries might decide they want to open up their capital account and other things like that. And it at least gives you that pathway that maybe previously didn't exist as
1: much. So even if we're not looking at a sort of immediate displacement of the dollar as the world's dominant currency, are there areas where you see a sort of interesting internationalization as far as digital payments, digital currencies are concerned? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the really interesting thing here is the
0: internationalization of different payment networks. So Visa MasterCard basically have had a duopoly. For you know quite a while now, but if you look at China, they've basically cut out Visa and Mastercard. They built out a network called China Union Pay, which is actually growing quite fast internationally. And same thing with Alipay, which now has onboarded around 2.5 million merchants outside China. So this idea of giving your citizens a way to pay internationally using their home payment rail is something that I think countries basically want to promote. Because, you know, it not only makes you a little bit more resistant to sanctions in the future, but it also ensures that you're able to kind of promote your domestic system, gain some soft power, some clout abroad. And then, of course, you would build linkages between countries' payment systems. So if you look at Singapore, for example, India and Singapore have already linked their fast payment systems, which means if you are an Indian and you want to go abroad, you could just pay with your UPI app. And that, of course, you know, provides an alternative to using the Western card networks. That
1: is really interesting. It's just reminded me of what I think is that the first time I sort of saw this out in the wild, I was on a trip to New Zealand, and I got in a taxi in a town that must have had a population of about 20,000 people. And seeing the little sign in the back offering that I could pay it with Alipay if I wanted uh, was a sort of shock to the system. Arjun, thank you so much for making the time. It was a really interesting chat. Thanks for coming on. It's a lot of fun, Mike. Thanks. So, Tom, what do you make of what you've heard from Michael Pettis, from Arjun? What are you thinking?
4: Yeah, so Ray Dalio, who's the founder of Bridgewater Associates, a hedge fund, talks quite a lot about the relationship between reserve currencies and national power in his book, The Change in World Order. And Michael pointed out that the US is the first truly global reserve currency, but there are other historical analogies we can look at here, like the british pound and before that the dutch guilder and what you see when you look at those examples is that reserve currencies tend to retain their importance long after their corresponding economies have started to lose their relative economic heft there seems to be this kind of stickiness that i suspect will also apply to america
1: Yeah, absolutely. I remember I did a lot of economic history at university and, you know, the the gap between the dollar really overtaking the British pound, not clearly and totally until after World War II at a point where, you know, the American economy had been larger than the British one for decades and decades. I think on the subject of digital currencies. I'm still a bit of a sceptic, mostly for the reasons that Michael Pettis outlined there. I always find a slight irony in the fact that US financial infrastructure, payments, retail banking is sort of held together by bits of string. It feels like it's decades behind China and dozens and dozens of other countries. But if that was going to budge the dollar out of its place as the global reserve currency, surely we should have seen that happen already. What I am a lot more interested in and optimistic about is the payment side of things. And one of the things that Arjun has written about recently, which I find particularly intriguing, is the possibility that information generated by digital payments, for example, diminishes the need for things like collateral in bank lending. There's some tentative evidence from Ant Financial in China, which is a major small scale lender, that you might be able to replace collateral, which is usually real estate or land. When people want to access a loan that they would pledge against it, you might be able to replace that with sort of data on financial history that's accumulated through these digital financial platforms. And if you can do that, then this could actually be a, a really, really significant thing because it would change the way a lot of lending, a lot of credit origination is done around the world. And it actually relates quite a lot to the problems that we were talking about in last week's episode around housing and land being such a major part of the economy and having such a large effect on it. So from that perspective, I'm really interested in how these develop. I just think that the most interesting parts of it probably won't relate to the currencies created by central banks.
4: The Ant Financial example is really interesting there. This idea of using someone's past spending and financial history as the basis of credit and lending rather than relying solely on on the collateral that they can put up. And I can sort of see it both ways. You know, on the one hand, there are some dangers in that you're assuming that, you know, a person's past track record in terms of spending and financial prudence is necessarily a good indicator of how they'll behave in future, which may or may not be true. But then on the other hand, you know, if you think about the housing example, it's always struck me that, a person who has consistently paid rent equal to or greater than what they would pay to service a mortgage gets kind of no credit from banks when they're assessing whether or not that person is is worthy of a loan to buy a house. So I could see it both
1: ways, really. And as the perennial renter of the Money Talks presenting group, I very strongly agree with those sentiments. I think Sadly, that's about all we've got time for on me complaining about still renting. But it's time, I think, to pivot to our statistics of the week.
4: My stat of the week is 21.7%, which is the e-commerce penetration rate in the US in the first quarter of this year. And that statistic is interesting because it's basically remained unchanged for about two years now. So there was a big spike in e-commerce penetration during the COVID pandemic when people were buying food and other things online because they couldn't physically shop. And there was a lot of discussion at the time around, you know, whether this is the start of a kind of exponential acceleration in e-commerce uptick or or whether it was kind of a one-off blip. And increasingly, it seems to be more of the latter.
1: Yeah, I don't know whether that's uh, a positive or a negative for e-commerce. I suppose e-commerce penetration being as high as it was when we were all sealed in our homes, unable to leave for most reasons, is is not the worst place to be in the world. But yeah, I, I love that graph because it's sort of gradual, constant climb and then a jagged jump and then it just sort of stalls out. Yeah, likewise, I'm really interested to see what happens there. My stat of the week is on a slightly older market. It's 4.9. And that is the ratio of sheep to people in New Zealand, which recently has dropped to the lowest levels since the 1850s. Apparently in the 1980s, in the early 1980s, the peak of the ratio was about 22 sheep for every person in New Zealand, and it's dropped to 4.9. I've got to be honest, even though New Zealand is, I think, part of my coverage area, (laughs) I don't have an in-depth knowledge on this market, and I couldn't tell you, for love nor money, why that is. I'll do my best to look into it, and maybe try and bring it back to a future episode.
4: Well, the number of sheep in New Zealand may be falling. But there is another animal that the country still has an abundance of, and that is possums, one of Australia's great exports across the ditch, as we call it. So, Mike, you said the ratio of sheep to people in New Zealand is now around 4.9 to 1. The ratio of possums to people is
1: around 6 to 1. So there's a bonus fun fact for you this week. And this is a piece of information that you just carry around with you, waiting for the moment at which you can drop a fact about the possum population.
4: I have many uh, possum-related facts that I will be
1: uh, bringing to bear in in future episodes of Money Talks. Well, people can look forward to that. Uh, You may have noticed that there's no stat of the week yet again from Alice Fullwood. Make of that what you will. But I think that's (laughs) about all we've got time for. With that, I'd like to thank Mairead McGuinness and Michael Pettis for their time. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. You can always write to us at podcasts at Today's show was produced by Dan Asher and Marie Keyworth. Our sound engineer
4: is Ting Lee Lim. And the executive producer is Jason Palmer. I'm Mike
1: Bird. I'm Tom Lee Devlin. And this is The Economist.
2: only from rustolium